Good morning. I always love the Christmas decorations, and the ladies' Christmas party went well. Okay, good, good. All right. Well, let's uh, let's bow together uh, in prayer. Dear Father, we're reminded this morning of the birth of your son uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, and we're amazed that the Creator was born a helpless child uh, and laid in a manger. And uh, he did this in order that he might be pierced on the cross for us as a Savior. And so we pray that um, this Savior, a Savior like this, would make us bold to enter into prayer uh, with you and uh, to ask uh, of you, to be expect, expect to be heard, not in our own name, not in our own deserving, but in Jesus' name, the one who shed his blood uh, for us and for our sins. And so we uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're um, going through different aspects of the life of discipleship, different aspects of the responsibilities of the Christian life uh, for this school year. It's been a fruitful study, I think, and... Um, helpful. The discipleship groups interlock with this, and we're trying to not only grow in the responsibilities of the Christian life, but help each other to grow in the responsibilities of the Christian life as well. And they're all really important, but um, a really important one is one that we're going through is prayer. Prayer is one of the responsibilities of the Christian life, and it's one of the main responsibilities. And so this, the, the one that this my message corresponds with um, in our our book, our Sunday school book, is called "Being Devoted to Effectual Prayer." And that's the, that's an important part of the life of a Christian. It comes from Romans chapter 12, which kind of just describes in kind of a list uh, the different aspects of um, being a Christian, and one of them is devoted to prayer. So, are you devoted to prayer? Does that describe you? It should, because you're you're a Christian. It's one of the responsibilities of being a Christian. We're to help one another uh, in it. So I already um, did one message on prayer, and this one's kind of a follow-up. And the thread that I want to follow up on is a really good one. It's caught my attention, um, and in in some ways it kind of grasps the whole topic of prayer. It's praying scripture back to God, or pleading the promises or presenting arguments with God, or wrestling with God in prayer. Okay, all those things. So uh, not just praying, but arg- making arguments, organizing arguments according to Scripture, and presenting them before the Lord and struggling in prayer with the Lord, wrestling with the Lord um, in prayer. And um, I've tried to learn a little bit about what Scripture has to say about that, and not just learn, but do it um, as well. Uh, who wrestled with God in Scripture? Jacob. Okay, Jacob is the one who wrestled um, with God, which is kind of amazing that God would stoop down. It seems kind of undignified for God to be wrestling with Jacob, and yet that was important for for Jacob to know God in that way and uh, to prevail with him. And it, it speaks of prevailing with him in prayer. I will not let you go until you bless me. And so he prevailed uh, with God. He got a new name. Uh, because of that, the name of Israel. Anybody else wrestle with God in Scripture? Physically? I don't mean physically, but anybody described? I think Jacob's the only one who 
Who? Job. Job. Okay. Yeah, Job. Job. Um, Job's a really good example of that. And in a way, Job shows how far a righteous person can go in uh, presenting arguments uh, before the Lord. He did put his hand over his mouth at the end of it. Okay. So, uh, but the Lord said, um, the Lord said to him, you know, Job has spoken rightly. He hasn't, he hasn't spoken, um, um, like his, like the friends of Job spoke. And so Job did not sin, um, with his lips. Anybody else wrestled with who? David? Yeah. The Psalms. Habakkuk. Good. Good. Habakkuk wrestled with God in prayer. And I think Habakkuk is an example not of prevailing with God in prayer so that God changes things according to what he prayed, but actually Habakkuk was changed instead. <laughs> you know, Habakkuk had to learn the just shall live by faith and understand what God is uh, doing. Can anybody else wrestle with God in prayer? I'm thinking of um, one because we're in Colossians. Epaphras, Epaphras, the founder of the church in uh, Colossae, um, is described as agonizing in prayer. Paul wants them to know. Uh, Epaphras, who's one of your number, agonizes for you. And the word is wrestling, like a contest, like an athletic uh, contest, uh, wrestling in prayer. So um, that's a, we're meant to struggle with God in prayer. Um, we're not to think that that's so undignified that God doesn't want to do that with us. He does want to do that with us. He wants us to know him uh, through wrestling with him in uh, prayer. Um, let me give you one from Job, who's one who uh, did wrestle with God in prayer. Uh, Job t- 23, verse 3 and 4. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. It's pretty bold for Job. David talks like that, too. I'm going to order my case before um, the Lord. But uh, he says, I'm going to present my case before him. I'm, I'm going to fill my mouth with arguments. Um Spurgeon um, did a whole sermon on that uh, verse about and, and the whole idea of arguing with God. And I'll kind of follow some of what he said in what I'm going to present this morning. But he says this, The best prayers I have ever heard in our prayer meetings have been those which have been most full of arguments. Sometimes my soul has been fairly melted down when I have listened to brethren who have come before God feeling the mercy to be really needed and that they must have it. For they first pleaded with God to give it for this reason and then for a second, and then for a third, and then for a fourth and a fifth, until they have awakened the fervency of the entire assembly. Now, that's a real prayer. You know, I, I think my prayers fall short of that, of praying and, and really feeling the need for that prayer to be answered. Lord, give me this. Because, an argument for it. Because your word says it. Because it matches your character, so on and so forth. And and, and uh, to do it, um, it talks about the, the fervency of the whole assembly being aroused by that kind of a prayer. You're really leading everyone uh, into uh, prayer. So um, that's sort of um, what, uh, what we're going to be speaking about this morning. And I've been impressed by the way in which praying in that way, praying by making arguments with God according to Scripture, according to what scripture says about his character, according to what scripture says about what he's promised um, to you, overlaps with and reinforces and mutually supports other aspects of the life of discipleship, other aspects of the responsibilities that we have as a Christian, such as walking by the Spirit. We did a whole uh, lesson on that, um, adjusting to the Holy Spirit, to, to the indwelling um, Holy Spirit, we're commanded to walk by the Spirit. We talked a little bit about what that means, and it's hard, a little hard to put into words, but it's to 
live um, in the awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence and being influenced by the Holy Spirit's character. Okay, something like that is to walk by the Holy Spirit. But one um, way in which a thought that's parallel to walking in the Holy Spirit, because Ephesians and Colossians are kind of parallel letters, is walking by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians is parallel with letting the word of Christ dwell richly within you in Colossians. And so they're not totally the same, but they're parallel ideas. If you're walking by the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit's character and according to his presence in you, your mind is going to be filled with scriptures and, and they're, they're going to be coming to mind as you're walking in, in the presence of, of the Holy Spirit. And so and we're to pray without ceasing. And so praying according to scriptures, praying, presenting arguments to the Lord, struggling to think of scriptures, to pray, I think, really overlaps quite well and reinforces what it means to walk by the Spirit. And then the, uh, another aspect of the life of discipleship is uh, seeking to do God's will in everything. Remember that? God has an opinion about everything. Remember that? Um, and uh, uh, so the Lord, his will is something that it's not only um, contained in all the commandments of Scripture or all the commandments of Scripture added together, but in every situation we're to strive to understand, even where Scripture might be silent or not speak of it directly, we're to strive to understand what does God want me to do in this situation? What is God's will? In fact, that's what Paul prays for in uh, Colossians. I pray that you would um, be able to discern God's will and be filled with all knowledge and discernment. And um, if you are trying to pray according to his will, I'm praying to God, I'm presenting arguments, I'm trying to argue why I think this is matching to God's will. I think it also matches trying to have the discernment to understand what God's will is um, in every situation. So um, anyway, I'm just impressed with how this aspect of prayer overlaps with other aspects of being a disciple. It's something where it's a, it's a big part of your life. It's supposed to be a big part of your life is uh, praying in this way, uh, presenting arguments uh, with God, uh, pleading the promises, wrestling with God in prayer. Okay, before I talk about what it is, let me talk a little bit about what it isn't, this uh, arguing with God. It's not telling God off, okay? And with the idea of, you know, if you're angry with God, if you're angry at the outcome, just come before him and just... Just sort of let it all hang out and uh, just tell God off. He can handle it. He can handle it. I actually read stuff like this in preparing for this message, especially as I look just kind of on the Internet. You know, you got to be discerning uh, when you do that. But but that literal thing uh, of people saying, you know, um, and, and using some of the same scriptures, but to argue just, just uh, vent to God when you come before him in prayer and, and he doesn't mind, you know, he can handle it. He wants you, uh, uh, to do that. Um, or saying, you know, if that's as far as you can go is just expressing anger with God, just leave it there. It's okay. And you can come back to it later, you know, <laughs> and that, uh, sort of thing. That's not what it means. That's not, that's not what it means. Um, to argue with God is not to say the opposite of what Christ said in the garden of Gethsemane. It's not to say, not thy will be done, but my will be done. You know, you're God, but I would like to be God. And that's why I'm upset with you. It's, that's not at all what um, is meant. There's an element of truth in it, um, which is probably why people say it. They're still mistaken um, when they say it. But we are to be honest with the Lord in prayer. The Psalms are quite honest with the Lord in prayer. 
Um, C.S. Lewis says, when we come to pray, we should lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. You know, we don't come with uh, a pretense. Scripture says, pour out your heart before the Lord, Psalm 62, 8. Cast all your anxieties on him. So you you have anxiety in your heart. You don't hide it from the Lord. You tell him about it. You, you uh, talk to him about um, those things. But if you realize that you have anger against God in prayer, that actually can be a breakthrough to understand that, but it's not productive. It's not something leading somewhere good. It's bad. As soon as you understand that you're angry against the Lord in prayer, it's good to know that about yourself, and sometimes you can discover it in honest prayer, you should confess it as sin. And actually, you can you should confess it as a particularly ugly and grievous sin, to be angry with the Lord. Um, and so uh, to confess that, uh, before the Lord, and uh, Scripture's pretty clear uh, about that. Proverbs chapter 19 and uh, verse 3. Proverbs 19 and verse 3. The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. <laughs> so your sin ruins your way, and instead of blaming yourself as you should, your heart rages against the Lord. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. If you find yourself doing that in prayer, don't say, well, God can handle it. Say, this is really wrong, and I need to um, confess it in prayer. Uh, James chapter 1. Um, and verse 20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Um, and so we're to put aside all filthiness, all that remains of wickedness, um, and... Uh, Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. Be uh, um, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Um, the children of Israel, what was their sin? Grumbling against the Lord, okay? You know, they they uh, they get into the wilderness and they say, Lord, why did you bring us here? Why, why, why is that your, your will? Wouldn't it have been better if we had been left in Egypt? Um, and we had it so much better there. That's not a good thing when they're grumbling against the Lord and um, they were punished for it and then were warned for it. These things happened uh, for our benefit as examples uh, for us that we're not to grumble um, as they did. And so grumbling in prayer um, is not um, what uh, what is meant by this presenting arguments uh, before, um, before the Lord. Um, really what you're doing in arguing with the Lord is you're arguing based on his will, based on his promises, and you don't see those uh, carried out. Not based on your will. <laughs> Not based on, well, I, I just want this. But to say, Lord, I think this is what you want. And I'm not seeing it happen. And so you're, you're making an argument that it is um, God's will. And I'll describe that a little further. But let me, let me try, to, try to approach it um, in this way. Why does God work this way? Why does God actually want to put us into a situation where we learn who he is by arguing against what is happening to us and arguing in prayer that this is God's will? Presenting arguments like Spurgeon talked about, where you're, you're arguing for something, you know the mercy is needed, you don't have it yet, and you're arguing, uh, Lord, I think this is your will, I'm praying that this is your will, and I think it is for this reason, and for this reason, and for this reason, and for this reason. Why does God put us into this uh, situation 
and work um, this way? And I think there's an answer to that question. I've kind of tried to struggle to put it into uh, words. God's nature and his character is to bless his people. That's his nature and his character. And that's what his promises say. If you put all his promises together, they're all promises about promising blessing um, to uh, his uh, people. But we're apt to think that those blessings come from ourselves instead of coming from the Lord. And so if God promises good to us and then puts us into a situation where it looks like his promises are failing, it's not to destroy us. It's not to take us uh, away from God. It's actually to cause us to say, what should I be relying on? What, what is the most, what is the, the surest foundation for me to rely on? Is it me getting these blessings for myself or is it the word of God getting these blessings uh, for me? And so it's actually not to destroy us or to take us away from God. It's actually to wean us from and to knock out from us our trust in ourself that he puts us in this situation so that we actually trust only in his word in prayer. And then it becomes obvious to us where uh, the blessing comes from. And so in that sense, God hides himself. He hides his character in our situation to cause us to know him through prayer. And when we're so proud, we're so likely to rest on ourselves and forget about God that we can't know him in any other way than in wrestling with God in prayer in this way. And so God puts us in this. And so when you're wrestling with wrestling in prayer, you're not just wrestling with yourself. You're actually wrestling with God against God because he's working in that way. He's putting us into a situation where it looks like his promises aren't coming true in order that we might prevail by resting on his promises and learn of his character in a way that we never could when um, if we're just thinking it all comes from ourselves. Uh, because there's never a crisis that we're put through. So um, kind of the natural habitat, the natural environment for prayer is the day of trouble, to make a request in the day of trouble. The word for prayer um, is related to the word for request, and I think that's kind of the basic. There's other aspects of prayer, like praising God and thanksgiving. Those are all to be um, involved in prayer. But prayer is basically a request. It's an entreaty. And the natural environment for prayer is the day of trouble. That's what scripture speaks about. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer and you will glorify me. Or Hebrews chapter four, verse 16, talking about being bold to come into the presence and ask uh, for mercy and for grace to help in time of need. Time of need, that's the time when when uh, God works in such a way to elicit a prayer, even a bold prayer that rests upon his uh, word. So there's a number of scriptures that talk about God uh, working in this way, and I've, I've looked at just some of them, and I thought maybe the best one was um, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. Uh, where Paul talks about trouble that came into his life and the the reason why God put it into his life. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. And he's speaking of something specific, but he's just been speaking about kind of the pattern of how God works and the comfort with which we're comforted in Christ so that we can comfort others. Okay, so he tells about this specific thing. Um, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. That's the point of this. So you're burdened beyond your strength. So that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's why he was put into that trouble. A trouble that was beyond himself. Uh, and he wouldn't 
have known of, uh, or he wouldn't have been taught in this way of, of the power of God who raises the dead unless he was put into this trouble. So we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us and notice prayers involved in this. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So God delivered us from this trial. The point of it was that we'd learn not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in him. And he's going to do it again, and your prayers are going to be involved. Wrestling with God in prayer is going to be involved uh, in this. Um, kind of all of Second Corinthians is about this. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God. And not from ourselves, for we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So the Lord puts you into a trial, but uh, he knows how much of a trial to not destroy you. That's not the purpose is not for you to be destroyed, but the purpose is for you to be struck down in your trust in yourself and to 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 prevail in it um, through prayer. Always caring about the body, in the body, the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. So that's, uh, it's kind of a human predicament, um, and the important thing in scripture, and it's just scripture after scripture that speaks of this, such as, um, Jeremiah 9, Verse 23, in other words, God has to work in such a way if he's going to reveal himself in love to proud people like us. <laughs> it's going to work through him hiding his face for a moment so that we'll learn to depend on him in prayer. We could learn in no other way. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. And the only way you can learn to boast in the Lord is through wrestling with him in prayer uh, in this way and uh, presenting arguments even uh, before him. Psalm 52, uh, verse 6 and 7 is a great uh, verse. Um, it talks about the righteous laughing at the wicked in the end. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him saying, behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. And so uh, man, even our old nature, trusts in ourself until something comes to shake us loose uh, from that. And uh, then uh, we... Um, Learn to trust in the Lord in prayer. So it's a school. Prayer is a school, but it's a school in which we prevail with God. I mean, scripture speaks of it even as God changing his mind in prayer when we, we trust in him. Uh, and ultimately, it doesn't mean that, but he puts us in a situation where it feels like we're changing his mind through prayer. Um, and it's order, in order to know him. Uh, Psalm, um, 30 verse 5. Um, well, 30 verse six talks about, 
Um, well, it's actually about the same thing as all the Psalms are about. Going into trouble and praying for the Lord and finding him to be a God of deliverance in the moment of uh, trouble. But um, it talked about uh, before this, Psalm 30, verse 6. Now, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Trusting in himself. Trusting himself. Um, in my prosperity. Everything's going great and uh, I will never be moved and it's all about me. Um, and then troubles come uh, to him and he learns to pray uh, to uh, the Lord, and he learns this about the Lord, his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. What is he talking about? He's talking about God seems to oppose him. What he's really opposing is this, him saying in his prosperity, I will never be moved, and it's all about uh, himself. But when he opposes him, it's it's only to push him to prayer, to wrestling to God in prayer, to wrestling with what God's will is, uh, to bless him in prayer. So his anger is perceived anger is for a moment his favor is for a lifetime the weeping and it's the weeping that comes from learning that he's not self-sufficient and he needs to trust in god in prayer weeping lasts for a night but a shout of joy comes uh, in the morning and so the psalm talks about you've turned for me my mourning into dancing and you've loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness and the morning that he's turned into dancing is specifically the morning of learning that he's not self-sufficient that he can't trust in himself that he can't say to himself, uh, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. And he finds out that's worth nothing. And by God seeming to oppose him, turning everything against him. Um, but the morning of that, as he learns to rely not on himself, but to rely on God in prayer, to plead the promises of God against God, seeming to uh, oppose him and to prevail uh, in prayer. His morning is turned into gl- gladness um, and to dancing. And he learns, uh, weeping may be for the night, but a shout of joy comes uh, in the morning. So God opposes us, and it seems to oppose his promises even, or his character, which is to bless us. He does this for a while, not to destroy us, not to tear us loose from God. That's Satan's aim in that same um, turn of events uh, for us. But God's purpose is to set us free of ourselves and actually to drive us into God's arms of mercy, to knowing God's character, to relying on um, his uh, character. And so um, what's true of prayer is also true of faith. You know, And faith is tested in a furnace. It's always tested so that it can be proved genuine in uh, the end. And uh, faith can only come about in the context of struggling against the idea that God is against you. That's where faith is born. That's where faith is tested. And that's also true of prayer um, as well. So um, God works in uh, this way that the arguing with God in prayer matches actually God's work in the way in which God elicits true faith in us and also um, elicits um, prayer. One um, kind of final thing when we're just thinking about why God works in this way to put us into this kind of situation where we argue with God in prayer. And it comes from Isaiah 28. And I won't read the whole chapter. But it's a great chapter. Isaiah is a wonderful um, book, Isaiah 28. But it's a chapter that talks about God bringing his people Israel to faith and, and actually knocking out their trust in themselves or their trust in their own ingenuity or their trust actually in this context in Egypt. They go down to Egypt, but they're, they're going to find it to be a, a broken reed to lean on that actually pierces them. Uh, in the end. And so God is showing them that their self-sufficiency uh, doesn't mean anything. And he calls it in this chapter, God's strange work, God's extraordinary work, because he 
his ordinary work, the, 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 the work that's really proper to the Lord is to bless his people. Israel's his chosen nation. His proper work is to bless them. Uh, that's the work that matches his character and uh, his will. But he does a strange work to oppose them, to show that everything they're relying on is uh, worthless and to oppose them, to give them short beds and narrow sheets. That's what he talks about in this chapter. Um, everything they try to rest in just doesn't work, you know, and so until they rest in the Lord. And then at the end of the chapter, he starts talking about farming. Isaiah 28 and verse 23. And it can seem like you kind of lost the thread here. Isaiah 28, verse 23. Give ear to my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat in rows, barley in its place and uh, rye within its area? For his God instructs him and teaches him properly. For dill is not threshed with a, a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. He does not thresh it longer. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. Okay, um, he's not just talking about, well, the Lord teaches farmers how to do their job. Um, he talks specifically about a couple of aspects of farming. One is plowing, where the farmer rakes up the ground, does violence to the soil. But he doesn't do it forever. He doesn't do it forever. He does it to soften it up, to put in the seed, which is delicate, um, like dill. Um, and then also of threshing, driving a, uh, uh, an animal with a, with a weighted sled with, with, uh, spikes in it uh, on the sled to separate the very delicate husk from the kernel of the grain, but he doesn't do it forever because it's going to damage the kernel. He, he knows, the farmer knows exactly how much, uh, to do those kind of violent things against the kind of delicate process that he's, uh, working with. And, um, the, the point is the Lord knows how much suffering to put into your life. And he's actually gentle with you. You know, when you think of God using suffering, don't think of him as an ogre using suffering to cause you to love him or something like this. He's actually very gentle. And that's what it describes here. And it, it's different for different uh, kinds of crop, for dill, for cumin, for um, bread uh, here. And the Lord knows exactly how much to put into your life, how much suffering to put in your life to elicit a prayer of trust in him. He knows how long uh, the he should hide his face uh, from you in order to actually cause you to uh, trust in him and to know him and to know his character through uh, prayer. And uh, it talks about the Lord of hosts doing this very thing, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. And so this Christmas, when you're singing of Christ, the baby, and one of the names that he's given, a child is born to us, and the first name that he's given is a wonderful counselor. He counsels in a way that's beyond our um, imagination. This is really the only commentary on that, is this business about the farmer. Um, and his counsel is wonderful. And only the Lord... Only Christ knows how much suffering to put in each person's life and is different for each uh, individual. Um, just this much and not enough uh, and not more. You know, a little more would have destroyed you. A little less would have just caused you to be self-sufficient and never think about God at all. But he gives you enough to cause you to 
actually wrestle with the Lord in prayer and prevail according to um, his character. And part of the process of that is uh, presenting arguments uh, to the Lord in, uh, in prayer. Okay. Um, Matthew 15, verse 21 and 28. I just thought I'd give a few instances of this kind of thing. Um, this is a prayer in the sense that it's spoken to God. It's actually just one of the events of uh, Christ's ministry and his uh, life, but I think it illustrates very well what we're talking about. Matthew 15, verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Okay, she's in a day of trouble. She's in a day of trouble. They came to her because the farmer was turning up the soil and he, he has in his wonderful counsel um, he knew exactly how much uh, suffering to put into her life but she's suffering she's suffering and and you know she wouldn't have sought out the lord unless she had been suffering if her daughter would have been doing great on the honor roll um you know i i she probably wouldn't have had this interaction she wouldn't have come to know god's character but because of this because her daughter is cruelly demon possessed she has this interaction with the lord and ends up arguing with him and prevailing with him, um, and and uh, presenting his character towards him against what God is actually doing to her, but it's he's only hiding himself in order to reveal himself to her. Um, but he did not answer her a word. Why not? Why not? When he, when she comes, she's uh, presenting her her uh, request. Have mercy on me, Lord. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She's a Gentile woman. He's he's in her country because he's avoiding crowds. He's trying to get alone with his disciples at this point in his uh, ministry. Christ was not called to minister to Gentiles. His apostles were, but uh, he was called to minister to Israel. That was uh, the mission uh, when he was on the earth. And he tells her that. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Because she asks again, now he gives her a reason and illustrates the reason uh, to her with this uh, statement. It's true. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I'm called to my special nation of Israel, and you're not part of it. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So she argues with them. She actually uses what the Lord says and turns it according to his purpose. But she's arguing. Notice the way she's arguing. She's not just arguing, well, I, I know better. I, I like, I don't like what you said. I like what I said better. She's arguing based on his character. She's saying what you provide in your character of blessing your people is so abundant that I don't need to be one of your special children, to get a huge blessing from it. I can just be on the margins of it. I can be just what you said. So she's paying attention to his word and arguing from it. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord. Not no, Lord, but yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is great. And it's greater because it's been tested uh, by this wrestling process your faith is great it shall be done for you as you wish and her daughter was healed at once so the lord argues with her for a moment his anger is but for a moment 
his favor lasts for a lifetime. And she learns to, um, learns God's character through, um, through prayer. Um, Genesis 32. This is actually talking about, um, Jacob wrestling with, uh, God, literally. But, um, he also prayed, uh, around this. And, um, Esau, the last he had heard about Esau is that Esau wanted to kill him. And that's why he fled. He spent, I think, 20 years away. And now he's coming back and Esau knows that he's coming back and it's coming to meet him. And, um, he hears that Esau is not only coming to meet him, but he's bringing 400 men with him. That's not a good, that's not a good sign. That's not a family reunion. That's something else. Um, that's what Jacob's thinking. And so it seems like God is opposing him and opposing what he promised, uh, to, uh, uh Jacob according to all uh, appearances, but he, he's left in suspense. He's given a space to wrestle with God in prayer. And so he prays a prayer that I don't think he would have prayed, um, if he hadn't been in this trouble. Um, Genesis 32 verse nine and notice how he prays. O God of my father Abraham, I'm God of my father Isaac. O Lord, who said to me, so he's telling God what he said, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you. And make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he reminds the Lord of what he promised. You said this, Lord. You said, I will prosper you. I'll make your descendants as the sand of the sea. And now it looks like we're going to be wiped out. This is like, like there's going to be a massacre. These 400 men are going to do and do exactly what Esau said he would do. Um, the last time I, I heard from him. And, uh, but Lord, you said, I'm, I'm going to prosper. You said my descendants are going to, um, be numbered as the sand of the seashore. And God delights to be reminded of what he said, of his uh, character. He's not like someone who says, well, don't, you know, don't remind me. I've already said it. Don't nag me about it. No, God wants to be uh, reminded. Um, so the, this is the passage. I won't read it where the, as he's praying, as he's preparing for the encounter with Esau, he wrestles with an angel and, uh, the angel seems to be, you know, wanting to destroy him and he realizes who it is partway through and then he starts clinging to him and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. But that's basically what he's doing in prayer in clinging to God's uh, promise, um, as well. And then he, um, sees Esau and Esau is actually favorable towards him and he says to Esau, I've, I've seen your face as one who sees the face of God. I'm seeing in your face, I'm seeing God's favor. Uh, towards uh, me and he's uh, prevailed against him. But uh, notice how he did. It's kind of like the prayer that Spurgeon was talking about where he says, you know, I'm, I'm praying for deliverance. I'm afraid of Esau. Um, and here's why. And here's another reason why. It's because of your character and it's because of your promise that uh, I believe it's your will to grant me this uh, request. And I'm arguing that it's your will to grant me this um, request. So um, some of the Arguments which have been used with great success with God. And I'm putting it how Spurgeon put it in his sermon. I'm, I'm going to use some of the same. One is his attributes. One is his attributes. Um, Genesis 18, verse 22. This is uh, uh, Abraham speaking to the Lord about Sodom. 
and Gomorrah, and he cares about it especially because that's where his nephew lives. Then the men turned away and from there went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? And so he appeals to God's character, his attribute, his attribute of uh, justice uh, in speaking with that and argues with God based on that. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, though I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. Now there's a lot to the story. But the Lord seems to be responding to Abraham's prayers and, and actually changing the threshold because of Abraham's prayers. Um, he's just, he ends up destroying it anyway. Ten are not found uh, in uh, the city. But the point is that um, Abraham prevails with God and actually learns to know God's character by arguing based on God's attribute of justice. I'm arguing for this and I'm arguing it not based on just I, li I like this, I want it to be, but based on who you are. Far be it from you according to your character. And that's the way in which we're to argue with God in prayer. So Spurgeon talks about when we present arguments to God, we should argue according to his attributes, such as his justice, like Abraham did, his mercy, his faithfulness, his wisdom, his long-suffering, his tenderness. And Spurgeon says we find these to be battering rams to open the gates of heaven, okay? So he's, he's talking about prevailing, arguing with the Lord um, in prayer. Another way to argue with God is based on his promise, on his promise. And I already read the prayer of Jacob, and that's what he did. He reminded, he quoted the Lord. There's quotation marks in his prayer because he said, you promised um, to multiply my seed as the stars of heaven. This is what you promised, and that's why I'm praying um, based on this. Daniel's another one. We won't read it. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. He's in captivity. He reads from the scroll of Jeremiah, 70 years, and then the captivity is going to be reversed. So what does he do? He starts praying to the Lord about Jerusalem. This is Daniel chapter 9. Uh, about uh, the city, he's arguing with the Lord to forgive, to reverse uh, the captivity, to change uh, what he's doing. And the argument that he's using is not well, he probably does use God's character. It's a pretty long prayer. Argues from God's character as well, but he argues according to the promise, the one that he read in Jeremiah. So Spurgeon says, uh, arguing from God's attributes is a wonderful holdfast. It's a, it's a handhold. But a promise has the attribute in it. Okay, the promises reflect God's character and present God's character in a promise. A promise has uh, God's attribute in it and something more. It's a mightier holdfast. It's a firmer a foothold or a handhold uh, because it's an actual promise to hold God to um, in prayer. 
Um, another is um, to argue for is to argue based on God's name, God's name. And um, part of maybe there's a couple ways you could take that. One is to argue that it's consistent with his character. And that's almost like arguing according to God's will or according to his attributes. But uh, I think what Spurgeon means by this is um, God's concern for his name. It's God's purpose to glorify his name on earth. And so um, Spurgeon points to um, Moses um, arguing for God not to destroy Israel, as he said he was going to do, because the Egyptians are going to hear about it and they're going to blaspheme you. They're going to hear. And so um, to argue for God's concern to glorify his name um, often speaks of what the revilers against the Lord are going to say. That's what Hezekiah does when uh, the Rabshakeh, the Assyrian, writes this blasphemous letter uh, telling Israel that there's no point in trusting in the Lord. And Hezekiah spreads out the letter before the Lord in the temple. It's kind of Hezekiah's finest hour um, and presents a prayer to the Lord that's based on the Lord's concern for his name. Lord, answer our prayer so that the nations might know that you're not the same as these other gods that the Assyrians have uh, destroyed. Um, answer because of concern for your name. He's arguing. He's presenting arguments with God based on uh, concern for his uh, name. Uh, Spurgeon says um, the sorrows of God's people are often can be used as um, an argument uh, for prayer. And that probably uh, speaks of God's attribute of mercy of relieving misery. And so if his people are um, in sorrow, that's a reason um, why God should answer uh, the prayer. Um, an argument from the past, an argument from the past. Lord, you've answered prayer in the past for this. Our fathers trusted in you and you answered them. Answer me now. You delivered them out of this. Uh, or um, like Psalm 71, an old man uh, praying, "You've I've trusted in you since my youth. You've made me a wonder. Don't forsake me when my hair's uh, gray and I'm uh, old. And so it's sort of uh, arguing, Lord, complete the work that you started. You've started it, finish it. And so, again, that's another way to argue. Um, unworthiness is a way of um, arguing for God's um, for God to act. And uh, probably, again, that's, that's really a reference to God's grace, um, a smoking wick he will not extinguish and a, 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 a bruised reed he will not break and so um, that's how Jacob prayed uh, to the Lord is uh, I'm unworthy of all your promises it really is to magnify God's attribute of grace towards uh, the unworthy Spurgeon quotes uh, Psalm 25 uh, in, in this light 25 verse um, 11 where David gives the greatness of his sin as a reason why God should forgive it. Uh, Proverbs 25, 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. For it is great. And so because of God's great grace, he forgives great uh, sin, and so unworthiness is, is there. And then um, the great linchpin of arguing uh, for, for God is the crucified and risen Christ, which actually... Um, shows God's character more than any other. Um, and so if you're arguing from God's character, you're, you um, argue, Lord, you've sent your son to die on the cross. Now hear my prayer. You've shown your character uh, to me. And so um, this, this means uh, you should hear my prayer and, and fulfill all of your promises. Second Corinthians chapter 1 and um, verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God in him, in Christ they are, yes, 
And so Christ is really the great linchpin as, as you're arguing, especially the promises of God. Spurgeon ends his uh, sermon by quoting this, the psalm that says, Open your mouth and I will fill it. And he says, if you open your mouth and uh, fill it with arguments with the Lord, pretty soon your mouth is going to be filled with praise. And... Um, instead of grumbling and instead of uh, complaining. So your mouth is going to be filled with the praise, actually of saying, why me? Why, why are you so good to me? But you, you arrive there by arguing with the Lord uh, in prayer, by grappling with him in prayer. Um, just a few minutes left. Most of the examples have come from outside the Psalms, but I tried to, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to, I don't have time to go through these. I tried to um, look through the Psalms and see what reason the psalmist gives for asking God. I mean, there's, there's many questions. And so I tried to pay attention to, uh, when, when the psalmist says, answer me, Lord, and here's why. Here's why. So, um, God's attributes. I'll give just one of these. Psalm 69, verse, uh, 16. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. He's giving arguments to the Lord, for the Lord to turn to him and relieve his misery and its um, the attributes uh, of God. Uh, sometimes it's um, just simply, answer me, for you are the God of my salvation. And so it's according to God's character. Um, it's not just his attributes in abstract, but it's his ab- attributes towards me, because of your loving kindness towards me, um, or because you're the God of my salvation. Often the psalmist prays um, according to God's name, Often the psalmist prays and asks for help because of God's ways. This is your custom um, to uh, uh, answer prayer um, in this way. Often he uh, requests God uh, to answer prayer because he's done so in the past. You know, you've you've done this for uh, our fathers. Um, often he does um, um, ask God to answer prayer because of what he's promised. Although I didn't find a ton of these in the Psalms um, where he's specifically quoting a promise like uh, Jacob did, but it is in the Psalms. Um, Psalm 89, Psalm 132, it's in Psalm 119, of course, and it may be in there more than I found where it talks about God's word, like Psalm 19 or Psalm 12 talks about um, God's word, but uh, pleading the promises uh, of God. Um, it's not all over the place in the Psalms and, and more often it's just answer me because you're the God of my salvation or because you're my, my rock and my deliverer. Um, another reason that the Psalmist gives is, um, consequences if you don't hear, you know, saying I'm, I'm, I'm in this place. If you don't hear me, I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. Uh, I'm going to be swept away unless you answer my prayer. And so he presents the uh, often the consequences if God uh, does not uh, hear the prayer. Often the um, argument that the psalmist gives is is to give a contrast with his promise or with his character. Lord, you're the God of my salvation, but I look out and my enemies are prevailing over me, or Jerusalem is in ruins, uh, or I'm a worm. And not even fit to be uh, to to be thought of as a man. That's the actual situation. And 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 even saying, Lord, come down and look, look and see that uh, my situation isn't matching what uh, your character is uh, towards me. And and so wrestling with God in that sense. So the argument is sort of a contrast, the reality based on what God has promised to do. And then also another argument that's given in the Psalms is sort of 
um, a promise to thank God after he's delivered you from the the difficulty. And I, I want to be careful here and distinguish it from bargaining with God. We don't bargain with God. Lord, if, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. That's the, that's a total wrong footing, uh, for God. But one of the, one of the arguments that the psalmist, uh, often uses is, um, deliver me from this trial and I will praise you. My mouth will be full of praise or even, um, a vows will be fulfilled. A vow was a, uh, not required, but above and beyond to express thanks to the Lord. And if you, if you're right by the temple, you just go and make, make the offering. But if you're outside of the temple, you make a vow at that moment. And then when you, when you're able to come, you fulfill that vow. And so the psalmist talks about, um, do this and I will fulfill my vows. They're, they're vows of thanksgiving to uh, the Lord. So I don't want to promote any bargaining with God among people, but, but, um, offering, telling God, uh, bring me out of this and I'll honor you for what you've done and for your character. My mouth will be full of praise. My heart will be full of praise is uh, one of the ways in which the psalmist uh, grapples with God. So uh, I'm out of time, out of time, and I, I want to be done on time. But uh, think about, I'll just leave you with this, to think about um, how would you pray for a new house? Your family's outgrowing your house and argue with God. This is your will. Do this because of your character. Do this because I'll praise you. Uh, do this because the answer to this prayer reflects your purposes in even using this home for ministry. How would you pray for the salvation of a child based on God's character? It's not guaranteed by a, a certain uh, promise, but it certainly matches God's character. It matches, him to, matches God's character to answer prayer. How would you pray for the reconciliation of a broken relationship? How would you pray for recovery from sickness? How would you pray for growth in holiness? Now that one, you actually have a promise. He's promised to cause you to grow. So you, you prevail with God against that promise. You've, ca- you've promised to cause me to grow, and it looks like I'm not growing. But Lord, you've promised. And so you, you wrestle with God according to that, and you find that that's a prayer that he certainly will answer. He won't just change your uh, view, but one that you'll prevail in prayer because it's according to his promise. I was going to throw those open to you. But I'm all out of time. So just just think about those and uh, put these things into practice um, as well and, and learn to know God's character um, in this way. In fact, you can know him in no other way than, uh, than knowing him through prayer. Okay, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us of yourself. And we thank you even for what it tells us of prayer and the pattern of prayer. We pray that we might not be admirers of the prayers of Scripture, but might enter into them ourselves and uh, truly wrestle with you in prayer. And uh, we thank you that we know you and that we know you in no other way uh, but this. We thank you that your character is good, that we can rely on it, whether we prevail uh, in prayer uh, in such a way that your scripture would say that you've changed your mind because of prayer or whether uh, you cause us to change our mind on these things, but we pray that we might know you through bold prayer, according to your will and according to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.